Please note that the following episode contains references to suicide. Welcome to Enough, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mandy Leto, executive coach and uh, recovering perfectionist and overachiever. This is a podcast for anyone whose life looks shiny and successful on the outside, but inside you're roiling with self-doubt and secret feelings of not enoughness, which you cover up with your stellar achievements and plenty of shiny things. If that's you and you're hanging by a thread, this episode will feel like a cup of chamomile tea. Um, unless you hate chamomile tea, which would make that analogy really awkward. So today's episode is all about achievement addiction and how we can heal from it. Maybe you've never actually thought about your need to strive and do as an addiction, like not in the same way you'd think about cocaine or shopping or gambling. The thing with addiction to achievement is that we're often publicly praised for it. People revere us for it. And that's what can make it so difficult because there is a dark side. There's a price to pay for it. Our guest today is Dr. Mark Golston, author or co-author of nine books. Mark was also a professor of psychiatry at UCLA for 25 years and was also a former FBI and police hostage negotiator trainer. Nowadays, Mark is a Marshall Goldsmith 100 Coaches member who coaches CEOs. And when he's not doing that, he's the host of the My Wake Up Call podcast. Most importantly, He's a delightful human being and a brilliant storyteller. So you, dear listener, are in for a treat. You'll learn why you may have started using achievement to get love and attention in the first place and why this pattern leads to burnout. You'll learn about surgical empathy, a concept coined by Mark that worked with some of his most challenging patients and how you can start to apply surgical empathy to yourself. And my favorite bit, You'll learn about the Dead Mentors Society and how you can sign up and how this tool can pop not enough thoughts like a soap bubble. I drop us right into the conversation where Mark is discussing why we become addicted to achievement from a young age. Oh, this story gave me all the feels. Ready? Let's dive in. I'm remembering a woman who I thought the world of, who completely fits that profile that you're describing. Really strong on the outside, apparently tough on the outside, but not really relaxed internally. And she comes in and and she's made up because she had to go to work. And I said, I just discovered what you're most afraid of. And it's not being criticized. It's not being put down. It's not being uh, marginalized. You don't like those, but you've experienced them and you're prepared to handle them. That's not what you're afraid of. And she looked at me and she narrowed her eyes and she stuck her chin out and she said, what am I afraid of? And then I looked her directly in her eyes and I said, you're afraid of feeling unconditionally safe and loved and there's nothing you can do to earn it and there's nothing you can do to lose it and she looked at me and it was like i just hit her between the eyes and she looked at me 
and her eyes started to water. And then she actually collapsed to the side on the couch and just started sobbing. And look, I'm a psychiatrist. I deal with the people who've been traumatized in their life. And, uh, and so I was comfortable knowing that we'd opened up something, we'd unlocked something that was really pushed away. And so she just cried like a baby. And I mean that literally and figuratively. And then she gets up and all the mascara is like dripping down off her face. It's on her white blouse. I mean, it was a real mess, but she looked about 10 pounds lighter. She had this huge smile and she said, you just hit something that went so deep and was so undeniable that you just, you unlock something and you unleashed something. And then what I said to her, what I said to your listeners is you may have what I call the syndrome of disavowed yearning. And she said, what is that? I said, I have this idea that before we're born, right before we're born, we're complete. We're omnipotent. Our wish is our mother's command when we're in her womb. And then when we're born, we go from omnipotent to incredibly powerless, not knowing how to communicate our needs. We don't like this wake up call. Then we just start screaming. And then what happens is a desire to feel whole and safe. And it's not to be had. And what happens is we want that feeling of wholeness and we don't know what to do about it. And either our parents aren't able to do it, they're not able to understand us, they're not available, or maybe they coddle us, maybe they indulge us because they don't know what to do, which is not what we need. And what happens is, for many of your listeners, we discover achievement, and suddenly we get a smile. We get a smile from our parents. That's our daughter. Isn't she grand? And boy, we like that smile. And if we're really pretty good, we can become addicted to achievement because we want more of those smiles. But the problem is the smile and seeking it is a way of coping. And I actually wrote a book during the pandemic with a wonderful woman named Dr. Diana Handel. It's called Why Cope When You Can Heal. And you can do this for 20, 30, 40 years. And and after a while, you feel, I keep doing something, and instead of healing, I'm actually getting burned out. And the reason you're getting burned out is that as we go through life, coping without healing uh, becomes more and more difficult, because what we yearn for is to feel solid from the inside out. When we are traumatized as children by that mismatch between our parents and our desire to be whole, we don't form psychological attachments, we form psychological adhesions. So we grab on to achievement. And the problem with an adhesion, even a surgical adhesion, you know, an adhesion after surgery is it doesn't listen to reason or insight. 
I'm 11 years old, and I'm at the small lake in my neighborhood with my brother and my parents. My mother is heavily pregnant, due to pop any day. My father is drunk, as usual. So we've come to the lake to cool down. It's one of those sticky August evenings. My younger brother and I jump in. I see my mom wading in up to her knees, holding her dress bunched up around her waist. My father is standing there smoking. So I come to shore to towel off, and my father's talking about this program he's seen on television about some tribe in the Arctic Circle. He said that if the baby was born into the community and it was a girl, they'd drop this newborn into the hole drilled into the ice because girls were a drain on resources. But it was okay because some sea creature would be nourished by the baby. It was all about the cycle of life. I'm looking at my mom and trying to get a sense of how this story was landing. I mean, why is he talking about this? How insensitive can you be? And he just keeps going on and on and on like he's narrating an episode of National Geographic or something. I'm feeling the rage knuckling up from my belly and up through my rib cage. And then it starts spilling over into my throat and I hear myself saying, stop it, stop it right now. I see my father's drunken face swiveling towards me in slow-mo, and I wonder if he's going to slap my smart mouth. And then I hear myself saying, I hate you. We exchange some other words I can't remember, but I still see the rabid expression on his face as he hisses, if the baby's a girl, I'll kill it. I wish you were never born. Whew. There's still a lot of emotion around that. At the age of 11, I was a straight-A pupil. I won ribbons at sports day. I won public speaking competitions. I was the grade eight valedictorian. I was president of the students council, captain of the basketball team, and still I wasn't enough. I was of no value. In fact, I was unlovable. Like Mark says, those psychological adhesions don't listen to reason because as a young girl, I internalized all of them, and I spent decades overachieving with loads of huffy, I'll show you energy. So while I'm sharing about me and where some of my psychological adhesions came from, I'm inviting you to think about you as you're listening. Where did you learn to turn to achievement as a way of self-protection, or maybe as a way of proving yourself? In her book, Find Your True Voice, psychotherapist Emmy Brunner says the negative narrative in our heads, the unwell voice, as she calls it, is almost always created in childhood. She says that it develops as an attempt to protect us from our reality and creates a set of core beliefs to help us cope with the environment that we're being raised in. As children, we're looking to secure whatever love is available to us, which is why we adapt by pushing our own needs down in order to pursue that love no matter how toxic or dysfunctional it is. So that means if I've got to perform perfectly to be worthy of existing and it's still not enough, that belief gets laid down, meaning I'll deplete myself trying to prove myself to you and I'll never really succeed, but that doesn't stop me from trying. 
I ask Mark, is there a way for us to heal those psychological adhesions? And he introduces the concept of surgical empathy, something he stumbled upon while working with suicidal patients. So he's going to tell us a story in the context of a patient called Nancy, but I'm inviting you to listen to the broader significance of surgical empathy as a means of returning to wholeness by feeling felt. Ready? Let's find out more. And surgical empathy is a pinpoint empathy that goes to that psychological adhesion and severs it by causing the person to feel felt. So I'd like to share an anecdote that really crystallizes this with a female patient who'd been suicidal off and on for five years. We'll call her Nancy. And she'd made three suicide attempts in the previous several years, had been in the hospital two to three months every year for four years. Back then, you could go in the hospital and stay there for a month, six weeks. And I was seeing her two, three times a week, and I didn't think I was helping her at all. I mean, she would come in. She wasn't catatonic, but she never made eye contact. And she just looked somewhere between lifeless and extremely sad. And once a month, I would moonlight, meaning I would work at a state ho state psychiatric hospital covering for the psychiatrists. And sometimes you don't sleep for 24 hours, so you're sleep deprived. And on one Monday following a weekend where I had moonlighted at this hospital, I hadn't slept for 24 hours. And there was Nancy in my in my counseling room and she wasn't looking at me which was usually the case and as I was seated with her all the color in the room turned to black and white so I'm looking out in the room and it's black and white and I'm feeling kind of cold so I thought I'm having a stroke or a seizure so because I'm a psychiatrist not a psychologist trained a little bit in neurology I did a neurologic exam on myself. So I'm tapping my, uh, I'm putting my finger out there to see if I'm seeing double. I'm tapping my elbows, I'm tapping my knees. And it wasn't rude because she didn't make eye contact with me. And after I did that, I said to myself, you're not having a stroke or seizure, you're all here. And then I had this crazy idea, and this is the surgical empathy, that I was looking out at the world feeling what she felt emotionally, that the world was black and white and cold. And because I was sleep deprived, I blurted something out that normally I wouldn't say, and you'll understand when I say it. I said, Nancy, I didn't know it was so bad and I can't help you kill yourself. But if you do, I will still think well of you, I will miss you, and maybe I'll understand why you had to in order to get out of the pain. And I thought to myself, did I just think that or did I say that? And I realized I just said it. I just gave her permission to kill herself. I'm in real trouble. And I said to myself, don't write that in your notes. <laughs> And she looked at me for the first time. And she looked at me in a way like I'm looking at you in the camera. I mean, she's holding on to my eyes. 
And I said, what are you thinking? And I thought she was going to say, if you can really understand why I might have to kill myself to get out of the pain, maybe I won't need to. And then she smiled. And then I grabbed under her eyes. So she grabbed under mine and I grabbed under hers. And I said, I'll tell you what we're gonna do. I'm not gonna give you treatments that you've tried that haven't worked before, unless you ask for them. Would that be okay? And she smiled at me and said, uh-huh. And she was intrigued. And then I said to her, and this is the surgical empathy, I didn't have a name back then. I said, what we're going to do instead is I'm going to find you wherever you are. And I'm going to keep you company there as long as it takes. Because I don't want you to be alone there anymore. Would that be okay? And then her eyes started to water and she smiled and she nodded. And it was a turning point. But can you understand what we're talking about and how what goes on underneath a lot of high achievers is this desire for wholeness? Are you a quote person? I have them scribbled in all my journals, on sticky notes and random books. So Mark, to answer your question, if I get the application of your Nancy story to an overachiever's desire for wholeness, I've got two quotes for you and for you listeners too. So the first quote is by Michael Nost, who writes, we spend most of our life bleeding from a blade that cuts from the inside out. I'm tired of bleeding. Mm, so good. And this one is by Robert Brolt. Having perfected our disguise, we spend our lives searching for someone we don't fool. See what I'm saying? Aren't those good, good, good stuff? So this reminds me of Mark's opening story with the woman who cried like a baby when Mark said her greatest fear was of being unconditionally loved and she couldn't do a thing to earn it or to lose it. In her book, Find Your True Voice, psychotherapist Emmy Brunner says that in addition to our unwell voice that I mentioned before, we also have a well voice, which comes from a place of kindness and is encouraging and cheerleading and all of that jazz. That's the voice that nowadays allows me to look back at my 12-year-old self and hold both her and my addicted father with way more compassion. I understand that for him, it was the addiction speaking. And does that mean that the unwell voice is 100% gone? Hell no, and it never will be. But the compassionate, well voice is way more present. So if you're struggling to find your well voice, you're going to love Mark's radically practical suggestion on how to apply surgical empathy to help yourself feel felt. It can be easier to hear that well voice from someone else who you trust if you're not used to giving it to yourself. So Dr. Golston, what do you have for us? I have something called the Dead Mentors Society. I have eight mentors, they've all died. And the last one was Larry King, because I used to go to breakfast with him every day for two years before COVID as part of this kind of quirky uh, breakfast club. And before him was a mentor named Warren Bennis. And anybody who's ever studied leadership will know his name. He is one of the pioneers. And here's how you can pivot. 
from what I've shared with you. Whenever I run into stress or I'm upset, I call upon one of my dead mentors to talk me through it. And recently I've been doing a lot of podcasts. In fact, I think from your facial expression, Mandy, we're doing okay, even though this is off the script. We're not doing bad. This is wonderful. No, this is great. Excellent. I think so. Previously, I would have sensed, oh my God, I went off the script. And and so I want you to think of your mentors, living or dead, or uh, it could even be someone that you read about who's a hero to you. So previously, when I'd be on a podcast like this and the host would orient me, and then I'd just go all over the place, I would call up a dead mentor. And Larry died in the last year. And afterwards, I'd say, Larry, Larry, wake up. And he had this New York accent. He said, he said, what? I'm not even cold yet, Mark. What are you waking me up for? Larry, wake up, wake up, come on, come on. What? What's going on, Mark? I said, I did it again. What'd you do? Oh, the host had this whole plan about how the interview was gonna go. And I just took off. I told stories. I hope they were relevant. I don't even know if they're relevant. You know, I, I gave some tips, you know, and. Sometimes I said, here are five important tips and I could only remember three of them. And he said, Mark, Mark, what'd the host think? Oh, she wants me back. And he'd say, Mark, Mark, you know, I'm not even cold yet. Can you let me go rest in peace already? Can you put a sock in it already? <laughs> and then what I would do is I would just remember these people loving me and believing in me when I didn't. And I remember appreciating and feeling blessed that they were in my life and gave me the gift of their time. And then when I feel that, I feel whole and I feel kind of okay. So if you're listening in, one here, here's something you can actually write down. If something stresses you or if you're anticipating something that will stress you, imagine someone who loved you or loves you, believes in you, thinks the best of you, believes in you when you don't, believes you have a bright future even when you don't think that way. And then imagine there, and actually uh, in, in that book, Why Cope When You Can Heal, we actually say create a stress relief journal. And you get yourself a little paper journal, you paste the picture of that person inside the cover. And this is a very special journal. You always carry it with you. And whenever you're feeling stressed about something that hasn't happened or upset about something that has, uh, you put down the date and the time and you imagine that person walking you through it. Uh, and these are the steps of their applying surgical empathy. So if you did this, Mandy, you'd imagine that mentor saying to you, first, number one, uh, what happened, Mandy? Or what are you nervous about? And you write it down. Don't write an essay because you're going to be carrying this around with you. The second thing is, what do you think when it happened? Or what are you thinking now that it's about to happen? Oh, I think, you know, this is this is going to be the beginning of the end. You know, it's going to backfire. People are going to be angry at me. They're going to be disappointed in me, whatever. You write that down. And then the third is, uh, what are you feeling about this? 
I'm scared, I'm overwhelmed. I'm, I'm thinking I can't keep doing this. I, I just feel terrible. And then the next step is the most important thing, which is the impulse. What does it make you wanna do? And you write down an impulse. I wanna quit, I wanna change jobs, you know, I, I wanna get divorced, I wanna run away, whatever. And so you write that down. Uh, and then after that, uh, you uh, imagine that person saying to you in a loving way, what would be a better thing to do? And the better thing to do is having this internal conversation with this person. And the better thing to do is just remembering, Larry, how uh, I, was a, I was just amazed that we had breakfast every day and you were kind of this gruff but loving guy. And, uh, a better thing to do would be just remember how much you cared about me. And that you wouldn't care about me if I had no value. And then the final step is, what would be the best thing to do right now? And often, what you'd say to that mentor uh, or that person you've internalized, uh, you'd say to them, just do the best I can. And if I mess up, you'll still love me in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Let's dig a bit deeper into the Dead Mentor Society because after this episode, you're going to get sucked back into your busy day. And if we take a little bit of time to set up this tool, you've got it ready in your back pocket for when a stressful moment strikes. So I'm going to talk about me, but I'm inviting you to listen for you, for who you would have on your Dead Mentor Society. So I immediately know that my grandmother, Mary, would be on mine. She was an incredible cheerleader and never let the fact that I was a girl get in the way. She always said things like, you can do anything that you put your mind to. And when I was upset about my father's alcoholism as a teenager, I'd often go to my grandparents' house and she'd take me to bingo or we'd do lotto scratch cards. And then she'd say, there, there, dear. My grandpa did too. And then she'd feed me and I felt felt. The Dead Mentor Society is a reminder not to take everything so seriously. Because these mentors have passed, it's an instant perspective shift. And it's a reminder that everything, all these sucky, stressful, irritating, irksome situations, they're all temporary. And so, dear listener, are you. So fortunately, she's not dead yet, but another living member of my society is Arianna Huffington. And there's a quote in her book, Thrive, that I'm paraphrasing from memory here, but it's something like, what is spoken in our eulogies is never all the things that we spend our life striving for. Like, she made vice president and ate lunch at her desk every single day. It's not that stuff. It's the kindness and the connection, not the achievements that feel so important, right? In the moment, they feel important. But in the big picture, it's the connection and the kindness and the love and the compassion that people remember about us. And that's not to say quit working and just hug people all day long and do nothing, but perspective people. That's the objective of this episode. So how about you? Think about one or two people whose well voice will guide and encourage you when you're stressed and having a wobbly. So who comes to mind? Is it a grandparent or a teacher or a family friend or a parent, somebody who's passed on, who would always make you feel felt? Bring them to mind, put them on your dead mentor society, and maybe you have a living mentor too. 
All right, let's get back to Mark and conclude today's super juicy and hopefully helpful episode with Mark's Brick of Wisdom. Maybe a brick I can leave is keep a journal. Something we didn't get into, maybe this will be a subsequent conversation if you want me back. But one of my greatest accomplishments is I dropped out of medical school twice and finished. I don't know too many people have done that. And I didn't drop out to see the world. I had untreated depression. And I, I couldn't, I could read my books and I highlighted every page, but I couldn't hold on to it. So I dropped out once, worked in blue collar jobs, which I still romanticized because they were so stress-free, came back. And then in six months, it happened again. And I asked to drop out again. And uh, uh, the school actually wanted to kick me out, but the Dean of Students saw something in me that I didn't. It's what I called a trifecta of hope. Uh, He said to me, you messed up, uh, you're messed up, but you didn't mess up, you're passing. Uh, but even if you uh, don't become a doctor, even if you don't get unmessed up, even if you don't do anything with the rest of your life, I'd be proud to know you. Because you have a quality of kindness that the world needs that we don't grade in medical school and that you won't know the world needs it until you're 35, but you have to live till you're 35. You deserve to be on this planet and you're gonna let me help you. So he stood up against the medical school and said, we're giving this one a second chance. And and, and then during that time off, I went to a psychiatric institution called the Menninger Foundation And I guess I discovered, I wouldn't say it was a gift, but I could get through the schizophrenic farm boys. And I'm not, I'm from a city. But what happened is I finished that, finished medical school, and this gets back to your journal. See, see, listeners, that was a heck of a tangent. (laughs) So the day I graduated from medical school, uh, I, and I wasn't a writer, I was a doctor. You know, I would keep a journal and I take out a little crummy, journal and I write down the date and I say I can't believe I made it through they have released a crazy person and that was in 1976 and I'm holding up in front of you volume 255 that's 45,000 pages nine books 1200 articles Not bad for a C student in English. (laughs) Absolutely. And so I think the brick to leave is keep a journal. And you can write about anything. But for me, it's writing feelings, thoughts, anything that the the, uh, the world might say, what does this have to do with anything? Yeah. And so for me, If I feel something, if I think something, I may not act on it, but it's worth writing down. And what's happened over the years is certain themes will come back to me. I'm guessing surgical empathy was probably the result of 80 journal entries over the years, and it just crystallized as surgical empathy. Mm -hmm. 
So I will leave that as a brick. And uh, also write in the journal those people who've cared about you and let their caring matter when you don't care about you. All of Mark's details are in the show notes if you want more of him, and I'm sure you will. And by the way, who do you know who needs Mark's wisdom in their ears? Stat. Thank you so much in advance for sharing this episode. Next time on the pod, I have Dr. Laura Crawshaw, who's an author, speaker, and a global expert on coaching abrasive leaders. Her clients range from the UN to NASA, so she is the real deal, folks. We had an episode a couple of months ago with Megan Carl. She was the Nike executive. That's episode number 31, if you haven't listened already. And I got so much feedback on the back of that. It was a real roaring success of an episode. So I wanted to bring Laura in as an expert to talk us through how we can quit contorting ourselves, trying to overgive and overdo to try to please an abrasive boss and abandoning ourselves and burning out in the meantime. So stay tuned for that one, which is coming up. So in the meantime, I shared Mark's concept of the Dead Mentor Society with Laura. I'm telling everybody I know about the Dead Mentor Society. So Laura indulged me and I was curious who'd be on hers. I'm nosy. So here's what she said. I think my father, he was someone I could talk to uh, about difficult topics. And I was able to bring those to him as an adult. And his response was always something along the lines of, you can handle this. He had faith in me. He had faith in me when I didn't. And so this concept of the dead mentor society, those are people who love you, who believe in you, who have faith in you. And when you don't have it in yourself, you need to hear it from those who did. I'm so looking forward to sharing Laura with you next time. Thank you so much for listening and for sharing this episode. Let's do this all again in two weeks.